young racialized A-level students have said to me, I finally get where racism comes from and why I am made to feel the way I feel. I don't need to be grateful to be here. I have a right to be here. That for me was such a powerful response to the book. What I wanted to do is to make racialized people feel that they don't constantly have to express gratitude. I want them to feel entitled to be here and to take to really take back what was stolen from them. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another remote episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited to be joined by legal, critical race scholar Nadine El Anane. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadine. We have been reading and absolutely loving your book, Border in Britain, Law, Race and Empire. It is absolutely phenomenal. And I think one of the things that it's making us think about is how important it is to be interdisciplinary in our approach to how we think about race, particularly in the British UK context. It would be really good for our listeners to hear, Nadine, about how you came to be writing this book and the sort of thought process in putting it together. You have to get it. It's such a meticulous piece of work that literally shows how historical and contemporary legal arrangements have been integral to the subordination of racialized people in the UK. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I love this podcast. So it's a real pleasure to have a chance on it. Thank you for, you know, reading the book and for your kind words about it. I mean, I've been doing this research for a very long time. I did my doctoral research on British immigration and British asylum law and European asylum law. Sort of by the end of getting to that doctoral research, I was left quite dissatisfied with sort of outcome that my research had, because I seemed to get to this point where I felt that there was a link between asylum and immigration that wasn't really being acknowledged in the wider literature. So people either study asylum law and refugee law, or they study immigration law, and the two things are never put together. I realized that these legal categories that we have do a lot of violence. So if you think about the category of the refugee, That is a relatively valorized category in the sense that the refugee is somebody who has protection according to the law if they meet a certain criteria. If, however, you are you fall outside that criteria, then you are totally without protection. Of course, there are some subsidiary forms of protection, but, but essentially migrants are a demonized category, a category that isn't humanized in the same way. One of the effects of having legal distinctions between people, some who are deserving of basic rights and others who aren't, means that some people are, are made subject to harm, sometimes fatal harm. So I started to look a bit more closely at these categories of people and their origins and what you find legal categories, um, legal statuses that we have today, immigration categories, whether they're citizens, refugees, asylum seekers, migrants in Britain have their origins in uh, laws that develop in tandem with uh, fluctuating imperial ambitions and projects that the that Britain had over its time. So British subjects can become alienated and made into migrant essentially through legal changes. So I started to look at the imperial origins of British immigration and asylum law um, and that's how the book came about. My initial response, my emotional response is that it made me angry, angry that this project is historically based. This imperial project is partly in defending the status quo. So defending effectively what people call refer to as white supremacy, like always ensuring that this thing is keeping a them and an us. And as someone who's been brought up on the myth that I am British and I should be proud, it makes it kind of hard for me to kind of reconcile this idea of an inclusive, multiracial place when the law is seems to be contingent on imperial ambitions. So it definitely, like, after the post-1945 aspect, when Britain was really kind of, it can no longer hold its uh, colonial possessions, has to kind of shrink back but it still defends this notion of 
you're someone who has no value. The only value that you hold is what I ascribe to you in law. T, just following on that, what Nadine does really well in the book is shows how Britain's politicians and legal system have sort of created this imagined idea or notion that like having things like an asylum system or a refugee status available that they're somehow like welcoming and that I think you give an example in the book of Ken Clark saying oh we have to help Ugandans and Kenyans because we have a history of doing that the embedded sort of saviorism like yeah, the, it's just the, white, so, the white man's burden yeah it's so you articulate it so well it is jarring. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's one thing I try to do in the book is, is challenge these mythological narratives around both Britain's history in terms of the empire and what that meant, but also in relation to, as you say, mythological narratives around Britain's apparent, you know, humanitarianism. Actually, what we see, particularly in the context of the 60s and 70s, it, it, with the examples that you were that you were giving around the Ugandan Asians, is a precisely Britain constructing its own subjects as refugees so they could say look we don't have to take them Um, this is an international humanitarian problem other countries should take the Ugandan Asians and it was Mm -hmm. talking of course about its own subjects and trying to say well they don't belong here and you know I I use the example in in the book of of how um, white Ugandans people who are white living in Uganda were, were termed as belongers so they did belong in Britain, and there were all sorts of um, plans put in place to be able to evacuate them via taking military action if necessary. Whereas for racialized Ugandan British subjects, a very different approach was taken, essentially one of abandonment and seeking to push them off onto other um, states as though they were a burden. I'm literally speechless. I'm literally speechless. I sit here and I'm like that. <laughs> my head is in my hand. That is so, it's so, (laughs) it's upsetting. But Nadine, can we just roll back a sec, right? Can you explain to our listeners the difference between claiming asylum or asylum seekers and refugee status? What are the differences and and how should we be looking at the way they're legislated through law, but also how they've come about through history? What are the things that we should know about these two different statuses? These are legal categories and they have different meanings in law. And I think what I'm trying to say is that their meanings in law should not be taken to be their most important meanings and that we should look at the effect of legally categorizing people, dividing people into groups of those deserving of particular rights and those undeserving of of particular rights. We should look at the material effect of that act of categorization. And what I say is that that act of categorization, which is, of course, a, a legal move, Um, is embedded in historical imperial structures. So law was used as a tool to divide and to categorise people throughout the course of the British Empire. Immigration law is one of those tools that really can be seen as a a colonial act, whereby you have one group of people, let's call them citizens, are given particular rights, are understood as having particular entitlements. Another group of people, let's call them economic migrants, are told you don't have these particular rights. You fall into a different category. You fall into economic migrant rather than the category of um, citizen. Um, and so these are very power. Law is very. It has this has this very powerful role of categorizing people into groups of undeserving and deserving. And what that is is a racializing process, because of course those who are deemed undeserving are left to suffer the consequences of that. Whether that's drowning at sea in their attempt to reach Britain, whether that's living or dying in destitution within Britain, all sorts of consequences flow for that racialized subject as a result of law's move to categorise them as um, something other than a category from which rights might flow. And of course, in particular, immigration law, as I chart throughout the 60s um, and 70s and 80s, what immigration law does then is to be used as the tool to constitute Britain as white. Whilst Britain didn't put in place a whites-only policy, as we saw in settler colonies such as Australia, what it did do is pass legislation whereby the effects of that legislation, even if not the explicit terms of that legislation, meant that British people would be understood or would fall to be primarily white British people. And so in 1971, if you fell into the category of a patrial, which that act introduced the category of patrial, and that's a person who would 
deemed to be have the right to enter and live in Britain, that was a you were 98% likely to be white under this category, because a person born in Britain or with a parent born in Britain, which is a definition of patriality was 98% likely to be white. So that's really how Britain constituted itself as a white nation through legislation, which was not racist in its terms, but which had racialized effects. Law seems is meant to be dispassionate, neutral, right? So this this level of abstraction makes it seem less harmful and more benign. So it seems like this is the rational way to do things, the fair way to do things. People don't really they don't put it into the social historical context. So when when laws just presented as legal terms, like like how it's presented between the British Nationality Act or whatever act it will be, it seems very impartial. And I think that's the danger if when you just describe people with legal categories. Absolutely. It's very it's very dangerous to see the law as something that just fell from the sky and is then to be applied. And that might seem obvious to a sociologist, but actually most law schools will exactly teach law in that way, that this is the law. Here's a fact scenario. Apply the law to that fact scenario and that will give you the answer. So a very sort of dry, black letter or doctrinal approach to the law. So that's sort of how lawyers are taught to think about the law, not really to question the social or historical or political context in which that law emerged, which might lead you to question its very legitimacy. And that, of course, becomes very dangerous because the um, field of immigration asylum law is replete with doctrinal scholars who exactly see the law in that way. And of course, um, the vast majority of people who work in immigration asylum law are extremely well-meaning. And in fact, they take a lot of time and effort in trying to look at how the law can be used to improve the condition in which migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, um, however we wish to categorise people moving to improve their conditions, their life conditions, they they do what they can to essentially interpret the law that will have a favourable interpretation for migrants and refugees in the vast majority of cases. Really important work for practising lawyers. It absolutely matters for the individual in court that the the law um, falls on their side in their particular case. And so that, that work is really important. It's really important for us as critical scholars, as people who have time, the inclination, the luxury of being able to think critically about resources that we think about their effect, that the effects that they have, the material effects that they have, um, and also their historical trajectories um, in order to actually understand um, how they operate. Um, And so that's what I'm trying to do is encourage people to think critically about these categories and kind of see the law not as something neutral, but as actually the source of violence, as as violence itself. In the kind of conquest of Africa, what the Europeans used to use is contract law, like the tribes would sign over tracts of land. And it's the idea that the law being the the vehicle to kind of to divide things up and to extract wealth. And it's seen, and because you've consented to that law, so in effect, these people have signed to that, you've agreed to a contract. And these kind of ideas, they're deeply enshrined in the kind yeah. of enlightenment thinking, the idea that there's some kind of objectivity to rules. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. That's, just to give an example of, of what I was talking about, and, and I think that relates to the point that you just made, is if we take the 1981 British Nationality Act, for example, and we look um, at how it built a concept of British citizenship, the first ever concept we had of British citizenship, um, it built that on the concept of patriality, the idea that if born in Britain, or you had a parent born in Britain, you you will have British citizenship. That act, that piece of legislation had a huge impact on Britain's former colonies and the Commonwealth. It essentially severed Britain, both physically and symbolically, from its imperial connections. And that was precisely the intention of that legislation. I think I quote in the book the William Whitelaw on introducing the legislation. Quickly find the quote. It is time to dispose of the lingering notion that Britain is somehow a haven for all those countries we used to rule. What law was trying to do with that legislation is precisely to send a message to people who previously had a right to come to Britain on the basis of Britain's imperial association with its colonies and the Commonwealth is to communicate to them that they no longer conceive of themselves as British. That was a really powerful uh, result of that legislation. And what I say that legislation is, is actually an act of colonial theft, which is odd because, of course, people would look at that legislation and say, well, it was a law passed in a democratic country according to democratic decision making in parliament and it received royal assent, etc. But it was actually simply another colonial manoeuvre, a final act of appropriation, because it essentially cut 
Britain off from people who would otherwise be able to travel to Britain and access colonial wealth that had been stolen from them in the course of colonial conquest. It's so good hearing you talk so clearly and critically about what the consequences of that were. But also it sort of makes me feel, I can imagine it must be so frustrating for you. Like you're literally saying stuff that is, for us, it does seem very obvious, but for so many, like there's so many different things that are working against people recognising how violent these acts and legislations are, whether it's the media, government, rhetoric, all that stuff. It's so powerful hearing you say things like, this act was about Britain now saying it wanted to be white. And it's like talking in our pre-chat about 1981 acts, that's something that my dad was implicated by. Like, there's so many people, like, from even even if we think now, like how people are being, are still experiencing this state violence because of that legislation, how purposefully violent that stuff was. It's just really hard to get your head around. The kind of repositioning of the colonial story in Britain, trying to make the imperial past a lot better. So one thing that stood out to me and I kind of highlighted is the kind of abolition of slavery. You kind of you mentioned it in the kind of introduction and how much money that brought in compensation to, to the slave owners. If we spoke about slavery, not in terms of the, its kind of the, of the horror, how important it was for of this wealth that's and all this wealth that's created, this dynamism that is created for the British for the, for the British and global story. And once you reposition that, you can understand how this wealth is integral, and it's because it's the way it's understood in history books, this wealth flows one direction. But if we take the works of Paul Gilroy and Stuart Hall, we can understand that this the impact of colonialism and imperialism is felt in both directions all over the world. But because we position the story as slavery is something that we don't really speak about, it's hard to understand all the stuff that follows on. It really makes your position clear throughout the book in that you start with the importance of thinking about abolition, but also then thinking about the financial crisis as well and how these payouts are really important in understanding what the legal system is in terms of for racialized populations in the UK. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I give the example of the Britain's abolition of slavery and the fact that it raised the modern day equivalent of £17 billion to pay compensation to British slave owners for the loss of their, their property, precisely to show just how embedded and how, and how direct financial connection is between British imperialism and slavery to modern day wealth, to modern day Britain. It was essentially the making of Britain. And of course, I could have written a whole book just showing um, how, um, you know, these direct financial links. But of course, then it wouldn't have been a book about law. Um, But I definitely wanted to start with that, because what I mean by Britain um, is that Britain is a made by was made by colonialism it's a it's a it is the spoils of empire right that's what i describe it as in the book and i think once we reframe or or rethink what britain is and we start to understand that what britain is is not a legitimately bordered nation state but actually stolen property um then we might start to rethink who is and who isn't entitled or to consider themselves entitled to that property and that's why i also start the book by talking about that really damaging rhetoric about the unjustly enriched migrant and how the the notion that migrants are unjustly enriched and taking things that, that they're not deserving of that belong to other people, that belong, that rightfully belong to white British people, as we saw um, all the time, as we heard all the time in the course of the EU referendum, for example, around migrants uh, taking things that, that don't belong to them. And, and and I really wanted to reverse that that framing and to say, actually, if you're going to start talking about who took what from who, then you need to go back into history and see how Britain was made. And so that's why I start the book in that way, to really put you know front and centre my understanding of Britain as being the spoils of empire and then asking us to go from there and thinking about well you know who are we to say that Britain is primarily for white British people the the important thing about doing that is Britain is not seen as a contested space in the way that for example settler colonies like Australia Canada and the US are you know there are first nations people rightfully demanding every day their land back are contested in a very um 
visceral and ongoing way. Whereas Britain tends to say, well, our empire was something in the past. We did something over there and that's over. We did a favor. We gave them a gift. We built their railways, etc. And now we're, you know, now we're just back here in our little island. Leave us alone. And it's about sort of saying, no, actually, we need to understand Britain as colonial space, one that is contested and should be contested sort of say um, that we need to challenge immigration law's lesson that Britain is the exclusive purview of white British citizens. Because that's, of course, what the law has told them over the years. If we look at the Immigration Act of 1971 and the British Nationality Act of 1981, it precisely says its effects are to say that if you're a patriot, you have a right to be in Britain. Of course, the implication of that is if you are not a patriot, if you are racialized, then you do not. And we see that every day, that the implications of that every day and the way in which racialized people are disproportionately subject to violence, to stop and search, to incarceration, to dying in their homes, if we look at Grenfell Tower, to dying of coronavirus, if we think of the current pandemic. We see that constantly um, in this society. So this book is about saying these people, um, racialized people, um, are entitled to precisely the things that you say that they're not entitled to. If we look at Britain with its colonial history front and centre and our understandings of how uh, of the contemporary moment. In, in the project imperialism and colonialism, I don't think the metropolitan base was ever conceived as being anything other than a white space. If you look at how Paris was constructed and how when you French Fanny speaking, it was never meant to be home for us. So even though my grandmother would speak of Britain as the mother country, that was always a fiction. And that fiction is inscribed through law and restrictions on travel. I just think to myself, like, that's not how the, the British project saw the home countries or how the colonial powers saw themselves. And I think equally, if you look at America, America still speaks like that. This is a land for the white man, not for anyone else. It's that kind of ideology that kind of pours through into law. But Britain didn't have that ideology. Mm. Britain precisely sent a totally different message across its empire. Look at Mm. the 1948 British Nationality Act. That act was precisely about saying to the rest of the world, um, essentially, which most of it was Britain's empire, was to say that Britain is your mother country. Britain is the mother and you are always welcome here. Now, of course, I I trace the history of the British Nationality Act, the 1948 Act, and I show how actually purpose behind the act was a reaction against Canadian moves towards defining Canadian citizenship, not in conjunction with with British subjecthood. Um, And Britain really saw saw that as a threat to the stability of the empire and so moved to pass this 1948 Act. Um, and, and then if you think about it, it wasn't until 1962 that Britain actually made a move to curb immigration, even though migration or movement to Britain by British colonial subjects followed swiftly the 1948 Act. But it didn't move to actually stop that movement legally until 1962. And that really says something about how Britain conceived of the metropolitan space, that the metropole it was to say, in theory, people are entitled to come here. We just really really don't want you to because of course the empire is built on the notion of your racial inferiority and so there were informal measures taken to both prevent people from coming to Britain by trying to persuade governments to prevent the movement at source but also by leaving people to live in very difficult conditions in terms of housing in terms of racial discrimination when they did arrive in the hope that this would put people off put other people off from coming but the message was very clear that Britain remains one unified empire in which all subjects are equal she told you <laughs> I, I was gonna say i i, I... No, I didn't mean mean it to come across like that. (laughs) The reason I say this is that it's important not to let Britain get away with a bit of a deeper look. Britain's racism, you need to kind of really dig deep into its legislation to reveal how nuanced and subtle, how hidden its racism was. And of course, the only reason it hid its racism is not because it's nicer, not because it's more cuddly, but because it was at the helm of the empire that it needed the empire to remain stable for its own political and economic interests. So it needed people to accept their position of of inferiority through the lie that actually the empire meant that they were an equal subject and that they had the rights of all British subjects, etc. Of course, it's a lie. um, And we saw that as soon as Britain started to lose its empire and this empire came under threat, it retaliated with legislation to prevent people from being able to, to come to Britain. 
And, and so we saw the truth of it there. But even then, the legislation that was passed concealed the racism in the effects. It didn't actually write racism into the law, as we saw in, in a country like Australia. Nadine, that's one of the things I think is so brilliant about the book, right? And this is something that T talks about. And like, sometimes we have to be careful about who we talk to about it. But basically, like thinking about, and I say this, a lot of emotion involved, and there's a lot of family history involved in it. But thinking in particular about Windrush, right? And this imagination like makes it so clear throughout this book. And it's such an important thing. I did that the Windrush generation were unilaterally welcomed here when they arrived. The streets were paved with gold and welcoming. Like it's just it's a myth. It's a total myth. It's a total myth. Nadine, we have to manage like people saying to us, like people like even within the academy that, oh, we were invited here. Like this is a and it's Smart. like, no, like, <laughs> no. Yeah, the reality is the government did everything within its power short of passing legislation, which it eventually did, of course, in 1962, and then again in 68, and then again in 71, and again in 81, and since. But it, it did everything in its power short of passing legislation because it didn't want to sacrifice the empire over the question of immigration during that period, but it did everything in its power to prevent people from being able to arrive and to make life absolute hell for them and the government discouraged London Transport and the NHS seeking uh, colonial subjects um, employment these institutions sort of set out to take advantage of the 1948 act and what it offered by way of, of labour but the colonial office the the, the labour office um, worked very very hard as I yeah. trace in chapter three um, to prevent that movement and even when people did come there were questions about shipping them off to African countries um, except you know due to psychological difficulties with that as a solution but that was really contemplated you know that was that's in it that's in a memo from I think I think I think the home secretary at the time right so I had that myth like we, we were kind of uh invited to come over and when I started reading like white papers by Honori and Bevin like the father of the NHS and all this stuff saying listen we don't yeah. really want them to come over here but it's 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 a political nightmare for us it's a PR nightmare if we reject them so we're going to have to let them in anyway but we're going to make it difficult for them through legislation and you can read that in their memos and you're like well, that's it's it's so, the disenchantment yep. is so crushing because you think I was brought up on stories that we came over and we came to help you in your hour for me. No, that's never the, it wasn't the case for me. What was really interesting reading um, the book and and seeing how forthright you are in evidencing and sort of really making clear that that isn't what happened for me personally. I've been doing some bits um, in the archive, looking at um, in Birmingham in particular. And looking at sort of local newspapers, but also comparing that to Hansard reports of the time, so between 1948 and 1971. Yeah. And literally, people were just like, we don't want them. Why are they here? Like, they're causing problems. They're ghettoizing the city. Like, all this stuff. And it's like, where did the myth of unilateral invitation, where did it come from? It speaks to what you talk about throughout the book in that, this position of Britain as this welcoming space that looks after its colonial subjects and all this stuff. But yeah, the, the reason why I was saying before, Nadine, about how it's a difficult one for me and T, because we do speak to people like fellow descendants of the Windrush generation who still do say this stuff. And it obviously it's possibly like thinking psychosocially, like it's a way of coping with how violent the state has been towards um, our ancestors, but equally like, it is. It wasn't a reality at the time, and it still it, it wasn't true. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'd like go to on, comment. On. I'd like to comment on that. Uh, just to say that, yeah, it was the colonial secretary um, Arthur Creech Jones who said this thing about expressing a desire to send them to Africa, but for the psychological difficulties of doing that. As you say, um, there are so many overwhelming examples from the time that show very clearly that the Windrush generation were in no way welcomed with open arms, nor invited to rebuild British nation post-war. This is all mythology. Whilst you're right that there are. Uh, lots of reasons for um, the existence of that mythology. But one of them is, of course, that Britain, again, can say they have a proud imperial history whereby their, you know, their subjects um, came and rebuilt the nation after the war. So it sort of presents the empire as being a multiracial sort of global institution rather than mm. the white supremacist construct that it was, the violent white supremacist construct that it was with, with lasting legacies of, of poverty, dispossession, violence, etc. Why I think it's so important and why I am at pains, as you say, in 
the book to try to challenge this mythology is to is because if we buy into the notion that this particular group was betrayed in the Windrush scandal um, was betrayed through the hostile environment how can we treat people who we welcomed in this way etc then we don't really understand what's happening with the hostile environment we don't really understand that the hostile environment is one in a long line of examples and instances of colonial violence meted out by the British state on racialized subjects, including its own subjects. It's just one in a long line of examples. And, and, and some of the other examples of that date back to post-1948 British Nationality Act, when the Windrush uh, uh, generation began to arrive and were treated abhorrently by the government, who, including, for example, the government not wanting to pass race relations legislation. They didn't even want them to be not racially discriminated against because that would incentivize more people to come. And, and when it did pass race relations legislation, it said, well, we're only going to do this in exchange for strict immigration law. So they would act in a racist way in order to justify the passing of anti-discrimination legislation. And of course, we see the same patterns today when people say, oh, this group of of migrants, they're okay. You know, they're good law-abiding citizens who came to the country in the post-war era and contributed and paid their taxes. They shouldn't be treated this way. As for the foreign criminals, well, they can be deported. They can be incarcerated. They can be taken away from their families. So what you get is is a throwing under the bus, one category of people, just as you have with the economic migrants um, in comparison to the refugee, for example. When we start to buy into these categories, what is much more important is to look back um, at the reality of what happened and not accept the mythological narratives mm-hmm. that we've all been fed, including in the course of our very poor schooling, where none of this is, is on the curriculum, so that we can actually equip ourselves better in the fight for racial justice today. That's very well said. <laughs> That's very well said. It is. And it's T, so, you must be buzzing that the Dean is like being so forthright about this because we literally talk about this weekly. <laughs> That's also why in the book I really push this point about citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies as they were known, um, as this group of British subjects were known in 1948 is not the same as a British citizenship as defined according to the British Nationality Act in 1981. You can Mm -hmm. even tell by the terminology UK and colonies. It's very clear that lawmakers saw these two places and spaces as very different things. And if you actually look at Hansard at the time, you can see parliamentarians, you can see the government introducing this legislation and making very clear that this is not citizenship, that this is really just a a euphemism, a backdoor to talking about subjecthood without talking about subjecthood. Subjecthood can sound a little demeaning. And so here we're going to talk about citizenship of the United Kingdom and colonies as a way of reasserting British colonial power. To see any assertion of British colonial power as somehow liberating or entitling or empowering would be a very grave mistake mistake as we learned the hard way when the Windrush scandal hit because it was precisely that category of people who then found their apparent secure status become meaningless in a moment in particular as um, Britain was uh, you know navigating itself away from the European uh, Union turning inwards defining itself in nationalist terms ever more strongly and then we saw a group of people a category of people who who thought their place in Britain was secure, become alienated, be alienated through through the law, which is something, of course, the British Empire um, has done throughout time. Whenever it suited it, it has said, you are now an alien for the purpose for the purposes of the law. We can treat you as an alien. We can we can we can we can excise you from the polity whenever we want and you see the same in the way in which immigration law um, nationality law is 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 enacted in the sense that uh, in everyday decisions if you are of good character we will consider you for this status but we can decide that you're not of good character that you're uncivilized that you're barbarous that you don't meet the standards of civilization and therefore we, we will not give you the status that you need in order to survive or that your family member needs you in know order what, to be able to when survive. you when i hear you speak and it like loads of things is coming through my head like so I think one I think I was reading Joy White's book and she speaks of what kind of protagonist in her, in her book. She said uh, he's an, an old West Indian guy and he saw himself as a guest, as a guest in the UK, even though he was from the from the empire. He was a guest in the UK. But when you start, when you broke it down and the idea of civilized and uncivilized, it's it almost it almost comes down to that kind of that ancient Roman distinction between the kind of civilized and the barbarians on the outside. 
and these borders are always policed. So who is who becomes civilized? Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's of course the at the heart of the imperial project is is this notion that some people are uncivilized. Some people yeah. are not even people. Um, if we think about slaves as property or about um, Aboriginal Australians being dispossessed of their land because they weren't seen as, as civilized enough to be able to use the land in a, in a fruitful manner. All these techniques of regarding people as uncivilized, as constructing people as not human or uncivilized, they're all colonial tactics. And they are embedded in the law. The law is just another tool in the assertion of colonial power. And we see that in immigration law, too, in the way that some people are categorized as too barbaric to meet the criteria for British nationality, for instance. What comes through as well, from what you wrote as well, is that how the law allows Britain to say that this is what we belong and you can't partake in this. So it's a kind of quote from your book, like saying that this calls help give currency to the idea of a colonially secured wealth located in the post-colonial Britain belonged to those classed as British, as pursuant to the 1981 British Nationality Act. The idea that you can't access this, you're not allowed to, even though we've taken it from you, it doesn't truly belong to you. That's the guise that the law has. That legitimising effect that the law has, the authority that the law carries, means that 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 assertion is hardly ever questioned. In fact, we all engage with the law. We say, oh, but that person has a right to be here. And and people have to engage with the law. People have to submit to these standards set by the colonial state when seeking access to their own property that was stolen from them. They have to submit to the colonial state's rules, their evidentiary standards, its evidentiary standards for determining who can access the spoils of empire and who can't. Um, And that's precisely what I'm trying to challenge or or rather to warn people or to warn people that when you engage with these legal structures, when you when you argue for the application of a particular criteria or you say that this group of people should have these rights, you are essentially agreeing that the colonial state is ultimately the one, the power, the ultimate arbiter Mm -hmm. of that power that the colonial state has that power and can decide who has access and who doesn't. But what I'm trying to say is actually they don't have that power. They shouldn't have that power. If we if we regard Britain as a, as a space that is that is contested, if we regard these immigration laws as acts of colonial theft and appropriation, then we can move towards a position where we would actually challenge the legitimacy of these structures because we can see the violence that is embedded in the law. We can see the law as violence and therefore actually challenge it. I was say, how do you challenge law? Surely you would have to challenge law with other bits of law. That's how law, of course, normally works or legal argument normally works, is that people offer, you know, different, different parties offer different interpretations on the law and try to uh, convince the judge that their interpretation of the law is right. Um, but what I'm trying to do is, is, is say, actually, we need to challenge the whole structure of the law or see the way in which the whole structure of law is embedded in a set of violent structures dating back to British Empire. And once we start to see how law operates to divide people and to divide struggles, then we can try to start to reimagine um, uh, struggle, um, reimagine what migrant solidarity or or anti-racist solidarity might look like that doesn't force us to resort to the language of the law, which immediately, if you resort to the language of the law, you are resorting to a language that divides, that categorizes, that sets some mm-hmm. individuals yeah. up to fail, ultimately, and that um, buttresses the power of mm-hmm. um, the colonial state. And so that's why I'm saying that actually, when we're thinking on a ground level of organizing, when we're thinking of migrant solidarity, we have to be careful not to use the language of the law. As some people, for instance, to give a solid example in the Windrush scandal, some very well-meaning scholars and activists were saying things like, well, the Windrush should get their rights because they're British citizens. They're British citizens. They should get their rights. They're entitled to those. They're entitled to those rights because they're British citizens. And that is an important legal argument to make. And I'm very glad that lawyers were making that argument in court and that they were winning for their clients. But what I have a problem with is scholars and activists making that argument because what you're doing is you're saying well if you don't meet the category of citizen if if, if you're not a British citizen 
then you're on your own. We can't do anything for you. And so what I try to say in the book is actually um, that divisive effect of appealing to the law is something that we as anti-racists should be very wary of. What we should be doing instead is looking to how we can we can create arguments around entitlement to be here that really even, for example, thinking about, look, if you're, irre- if you're irregularized, if the law has made you illegal, you can't be helped by someone saying, oh, you're a British citizen, because you're not. So what are you doing? Well, you are, you are engaged in anti-colonial activity. You are engaged in anti-colonial resistance when you seek to take back what is yours, even though the law tells you that it's not yours. That's a much more empowering way of thinking about people who are forced into irregularized positions through the law. And this is the way it works. If you're not defined in law, you don't exist. Like, so make, if you're irregularized and you don't, there's no category that you fit into neatly, then it makes it harder for people to understand what yeah. you're going through. And then, so the, the things that people resort to, your lived experience, this is not seen as having the equal weight as the law, which is seen something abstract, heavy, just and fair. Those concepts sit in or around the concept of law, the idea of law, sorry. So if someone's speaking about their experience and I might be speaking my, my, my personal experience and I'm using personal or subjective stuff, it doesn't ring as well. It doesn't sit as well. So those arguments seem harder to make, but I listen, I definitely 100% agree with you. Well, the, the, yeah, exactly. This That's why it's so important to challenge the idea that law is somehow the ultimate authority on who is entitled to be here and who isn't, who is entitled to come here and who isn't. Because as you say, it has a very powerful effect. It is so embedded in people's psyches. People will say, well, as long as the as uh, if they have a right, they have a right. If they don't, they don't. You know, full stop. That's the end of the story. But it absolutely isn't the end of the story if we look at the historical origins of this legislation and how they came about and actually regard them as illegitimate of themselves or look at the effect, look at the, the reasons behind introduction, um, in particular around reconstructing or reframing Britain as not as an empire, but as a legitimately bordered sovereign nation state where everything within it belongs to everyone within it. It's too convenient. It's too simple a history and it, and it just isn't an accurate one. Hard to kind of separate is even how we speak about it in terms of sociology. So Max Weber like, described the Western system as legal rational. Mm. The, the linking of the word legal to the link of the word rational. So it seems, it, it fits very neatly into the idea of the, of of the civilized of the right thinking to think outside those terms either means you're it means you're barbarous or you're kind of some kind of fascist dictator like you, you don't sit within the canon or what is legitimate in, in western society it's, it's a difficult thing to grasp really like i'm not trying to take us off on a tangent one of the things that is really sort of ringing in my ear based on some of the things that you're saying now and you mentioned migrant solidarities like can you speak to a little bit Brexit and the lack of solidarities that we saw and how I mean I've seen you speak about this very very eloquently. What I say about Brexit is it's just another in a long line of assertions of white of exclusive white entitlement to colonial wealth in the same way that the hostile environment is the same you know the, the idea behind the hostile environment of of there are people here and they're accessing things that don't belong to them and it's too easy mm. and we need to get rid of them we need to make sure that they can't do it brexit also this is is built on this notion that everything within britain mm. belongs to white british people and we saw that rhetoric, that anti-immigration rhetoric completely subsumed the debate around the European Union in a way that was extremely violent. We saw the murder of an, a left-wing MP um, in the course of that referendum. We saw all kinds of hate crime go up and stay, of course, at a higher rate than before the referendum. And of course, if and what I what I say in the book is that had people had a better understanding of what Britain is and how Britain came to be, this would have been very predictable. Brexit would have been very predictable. We would have totally been able to predict that a nation that once you know ruled a large proportion of the world would consider itself better off as a nation severed from any kind of transnational cooperation. Would consider itself better off without migrants in it. Would see itself as being able to be great again 
um, you know, in accordance with all that mythology and amnesia around what empire was. And this isn't to say that the European Union is some kind of progressive paradise, not at all. And I spend yeah. a whole chapter in the book, as you'll know, um, showing how even the European Union itself um, is a product of European empires, it is a construct um, essentially that came out of European empires that were defeated, you know, European member states came together to try to ensure that they preserved access to the spoils of their imperial exploits. And that was no secret, you know, that was no secret. Countries coming together in the 1950s in that way were very clear about the importance of coming together and and still retaining political, uh, international influence, etc., and of course, Britain joined the EU precisely because it saw the EU as, as being a substitute for its empire, as being a, a way of asserting its political and international influence <laughs> through a different fora, through a more modern fora than that of empire. So as empire was defeated, this was seen as, you know, whoever took hold of Europe, whoever took the lead of Europe would be the next leader of the world. And so Britain went into it with exactly that mindset. Of course, those were precisely the same arguments we heard, that Britain's going to be some kind of world <laughs> leader by leaving the, EU, the European Union. And it's, of course, a, a very ignorant stance to have taken because you only have to look back at some Hansard um, in order to see that the exact same arguments were made for joining. I suppose, um, and I'm trying to speak to kind of, I'm try, I always try to think, how does the average, like the average English person view all this? It pains me that they're kind of painfully oblivious to what's going on. Like I hear the rhetoric or I hear like uh, silly slogans and I think, don't you understand what's going on? Obviously they don't, but that's what kind of upsets me. And I think yeah. to myself that they need to read, yeah. not they, everyone should read this book, right? Because it's beneficial because it makes you understand, it, it locates you in where you are right now. How law has been used to kind of hold power in place for a certain group of people, how law has been used to extract wealth from a, from a place and, and keep certain people out. So even if you can't understand it from a point of view of the, of the migrant, even internally, for when people were enfranchised with the right to vote, law was used in a similar way to keep poorer people out and very real presence in people's lives. And I think that's what we should draw attention to, you know? I'm glad that, to, that you say that, because one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book is precisely challenge mm-hmm. law's pedagogical power, because law really, immigration law really teaches white British people that they deserve, um, that they are entitled, exclusively entitled to everything within Britain, and that, and that migrants are somehow accessing... Um, the welfare system, the housing system, um, the uh, uh, anything really, um, even just space, just taking up space that they're not entitled to, that white British people are entitled to, and that that's really. Um, uh, and I and I use the you know the example at, at the beginning of the book about how you know when my father retired, his white British neighbours you know said to him, "When are you going to go? When are you going back to Egypt?" <laughs> So, you know, that kind of psyche that actually you're just assumed to not really be here, that your status is always contingent. It's always temporary. You're just here as a guest here for a bit. It doesn't matter if you're a British citizen. You know, it doesn't matter what the law says. Ultimately, people still regard you if you are racialized, if you are not white, as not really belonging here, um, as not really here to stay, here, here by the grace of some, you know, of him, you know, of this neighbor, for instance. And that's what I'm trying to challenge, is that that power that the law has in teaching people um, something that is very wrong, something that is that is just not borne out. If, and that's what that, that epitaph, go back home, kind of kind of comes so freely. It's, yeah. it's a weird thing to be confronted by. Someone that I might, I might know quite well, once we get into a little bit of aggravation, that will just flow quite freely from their lips. And you think, well, why would someone say that if I'm born here? And they would only say that if there's a possibility of me actually being kicked out. The law does make you especially vulnerable to being kicked out precisely because you're racialized. You know, if either of your parents have a, have a, have a non-British heritage or even just a claim to a non-British her- heritage, as we've seen with citizenship deprivation laws, you are more likely to be chucked out. So it's not that the law doesn't necessarily marry up to that. It does. But what I'm trying to say is that at, at the state level, there are laws which totally embody that go-home dictum. And that go-home dictum is then mm-hmm. echoed on the street because it is, because actually the law works in tandem with, with street violence, with the dictum being, being uttered um, at street level. It reinforces the I think it was Luke de la Rona that said on this podcast, thinking about, yeah, the state and the law and then thinking about how that enacts on the street, both should be understood as bordering. 
Like we we're talking about them as racism, and he's like, it's race, it's racism, but it's also bordering. It's like it just blew my mind. I was like, oh my god, this is terrible. But equally, that's a really important point to make. God, I feel re- like it's it's so inspiring listening to you speak, today and it's making. I'm, I'm not going to lie to this. I'm very emotional. I'm I very think, emotional. I'll just, I'll, I can't <laughs> <make you all. laughs> uh, the one thing I would say with that go home thing is that if we see the empire is having legacies, is having legacies of racism that touch every corner of the world, even corners of the world that Britain didn't dominate, that didn't, didn't colonize. If we see these legacies as being lasting, as being everywhere, I mean, that's one of the sort of ways I try to read Go Home at the end of at the end of the book to say that it actually, when you say go home, if Britain is everywhere, then it's really an invitation to stay. <laughs> Um, it's actually yeah. this, you can you can powerfully yeah, 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 subvert yeah. it yeah, yeah. to actually be read as uh, you know within that dictum you are actually saying you know if you understand Britain as having had an empire as having been everywhere you are actually saying that you are rightfully here and one of the things that I have really enjoyed about talking about this book mm. particularly with younger people in colleges is that they've said to me young racialized A level students have said to me. I finally get where racism comes from and why I am made to feel the way I feel. And I feel like I don't, I don't need to be grateful to be here, that I'm just like allowed, like I, I have a right to be here. Uh, and, you know, I, that for me is, was such a powerful response to the book because I do, I do want it to have an empowering message. Like what, I want it, what I want it to do is to make racialized people feel that they don't constantly have to express gratitude, to feel that they should be grateful for every crumb they're thrown, that their status is somehow constantly contingent on, on the state and on people around them, the media, et cetera, telling them that they don't belong here. I wanted to have that. I want them to feel entitled to be here yeah. and to take to really take back what was I think that's a powerful message because all the time my our existence is defined in terms of utility. So even in the NHS, like we work in, like you only here yeah. if you you could do yeah. a, if, yeah. you, if you could yeah. do a job or we're, we're grateful, but. So you have to prove your worth that you have to be here. Yeah, look at yeah. Priti Patel in the midst of a pandemic turning around and saying, okay, those those NHS frontline workers whose visas are due to expire in October, actually you can stay. Why? So that you can sacrifice your lives for people who only, you know, a few months ago voted wait, you wait, out wait. of this country. That's essentially what, what's happening there. You're absolutely right. You're, you're welcome <laughs> if you're going to, you know, be sacrificing, sacri- literally sacrificing your life for people who voted you out of this country brilliant place to end you're amazing Nadine and just to say like that is why this work is so integral that the the anecdote you just gave about A-level students we don't know where we've come from we don't know who we are everyone and that is why we have to do this this critical work is so integral it is life-changing for people it is reading this stuff and thank you for doing that work thank you thank you both so much I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and I just appreciate the feedback because, you know, writing is difficult and you never know how your work is going to be received. And it's also an odd time to have a book out. But I think speaking to you and, and doing a couple of other virtual events, I, I do sort of feel, yeah, that it has it has a point to make even about what's happening now, um, even if not in explicit terms. If you haven't already, you need to get Border in Britain. We're going to be giving away a copy to one of our listeners. There's a discount code which you can put as well for those who don't win it, um, I think it's bordering 50, which is valid until the end of May. So I can get a different code for you, especially for Surviving Society as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. We're going to get a Surviving Society. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, we'll be back again next week. Stay safe. Thank you. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.